We are incredibly excited to be introducing our special guest, the Honourable Michael Kirby, AC, CMG. For those in the legal sphere, his honour needs no introduction. He's very well known in the field. But to provide a bit of context for those who may not be in the profession, Michael Kirby has served, among many other roles, as the Chairman of the Australian Law Reform Commission, Judge of the Federal Court of Australia, President of the New South Wales Court of Appeal and President of the Court of Appeal of the Solomon Islands. In 1996, his honour was appointed as the 40th Justice of the High Court of Australia and he served in that role until 2009. After that, um, he's taken on a number of international roles, including with the United Nations, the Commonwealth Secretariat, the OECD and the Global Fund Against AIDS, Tuberculosis and Malaria. Welcome, Michael, and thank you so much for being a guest on our podcast today. It's a pleasure and a privilege. <laughs> the privilege is all ours. I have some rapid fire questions for you. The first of which is, what are your pronouns? Uh, his, he, him. Perfect. What is your coffee order? Soy mocha. I think that's our first soy mocha that we've had on the podcast, so that's exciting. Uh, what is the highlight of your year so far? Uh, so far, I would say the highlight is being told by Macquarie University, which has named its new law school building after me, that they're calling the lecture hall on the ground level, the straight after you come into the building, after my partner, Johan van Floten. That is a very rare thing to do, and uh, I'm very proud of that because he has been really a centre of my life, and uh, therefore it's a lovely thing. Uh, it's unimaginable that this would have been done even 10 or 15 years ago. So it's something very special, and I'm thrilled. What, uh, that's just amazing. Um, thank you for sharing that with us. We appreciate that. My last question is, what would you sing at karaoke? Uh, well, karaoke is not really my scene, <laughs> so I, I would want, not want to encourage a great career. So I would sing uh, uh, a section of a wonderful cantata of J.S. Bach, Ich will den Kreuzstag gerne tragen, which means I will gladly carry the cross. Uh, it's a religious thing but the music is is heavenly and magnificent and wonderful and I love J.S. Bach's cantatas and I'm sure that would lead to everybody rushing out of the karaoke bar and saying who invited him? <laughs> Ruth and I would gladly put our hand up and say it was us. <laughs> we invited him to the bar. Thank you very much um, for answering those questions. Um, we are really looking forward to discussing with you the role of health rights in vulnerable groups in the context of pandemics. So beginning with the political declaration of the United Nations General Assembly high-level meeting on pandemic prevention, preparedness and response, we have noticed how vulnerable society is during a pandemic. We are always at the mercy of researchers to find a prevention or cure. We are at the mercy of governments to plan to distribute treatments to us. We are at the mercy of others to obey directives and quarantine requirements that our governments should put in place in the first place. We are also at the mercy of health workers to risk their lives for us and to sacrifice themselves 
for our own health. And we are also at the mercy of our um, data to not be patented and to be made available uh, so that more research, more treatments and cures can be found. However, some people are far more vulnerable than others. We have, we have people living with communicable diseases, disabilities, women, children, LGBTQ, the elderly and First Nations people. Would you mind talking to us about your time working with United Nations AIDS and the WHO in response to the AIDS pandemic, in particular your observations about the health rights of vulnerable groups? Well, HIV was about nothing if it wasn't about vulnerable groups. When this strange uh, disease, uh, which was called the Slimda group disease, when the first um, people who were affected came out of the jungles in Congo, um, they were often the poorest of the poor and uh, very vulnerable. And just being people from the jungle in Congo, they were already very vulnerable human beings. And after that, they found that uh, the epidemic by reason of the way uh, it was transmitted tended to affect particular groups who were not, shall we say, top of the pops. They were rather unpopular groups, such as men who have sex with men, homosexuals, mainly men, um, people who uh, are, um, uh, who are, people who are sex workers, people who uh, are um, involved in uh, injecting drug use, uh, people who are in custody because they're prisoners or uh, detained. So that that section of the population is a very atypical section. They tend not to be popular. They tend also to be um, stigmatised and people don't really see why they should do anything for them and think that they should be locked up or punished and that was the attitude when AIDS came along but fortunately we took uh, very sensible uh, and protective uh, positions in respect of those who were vulnerable to spread of HIV uh, and the result of that was that we in Australia did much better than the countries that simply adopted a punitive uh, approach. And uh, it was a lesson we partly learned from New Zealand, but we copied it very quickly. And it's a reason why in Australia the uh, spread of the uh, pandemic was uh, restricted and, and uh, not anything like the size of the pandemic in other countries, including wealthy countries like the United States. Could you speak to us a little bit more, please, about um, why Australia was so successful in comparison to other countries? What were the particular strategies that enabled us to move so quickly in response to this pandemic? First, uh, the international community had responded uh, very rapidly, unusually rapidly, uh, and um, a particular civil servant of the World Health Organization, Dr. Jonathan Mann, uh, had uh, seen the slim disease manifesting itself in Congo, where he was present as an epidemiologist, uh, and uh, he had buttonholed the secretary, the director general of the World Health Organization and said, uh, 
director, there's something very strange happening here and it's a very serious thing and all these people are dying and they're coming out of the jungle and I think we should be doing something about it because it won't be confined to us in Congo. This is going to spread around the world. Unfortunately, the World Health Organization uh, paid attention. Fortunately, they set up the global program on AIDS. Jonathan Mann became the head of that. He established uh, a global commission on AIDS and I was appointed to be a member of that global commission and it gave the instructions or the recommendations to member countries of the United Nations as to how best to deal with this pandemic, uh, even though they didn't have a vaccine and they didn't have a cure. And we still don't have a vaccine. We still don't have a cure for uh, HIV. We can palliate it, uh, but uh, we have no vaccine and we can't cure it. So you've spoken, I guess, of one particular person who maybe brought this issue to light and really advocated about that um, to organisations and systems that could help shape change. And I'm wondering maybe if you could speak a little bit more about some of the other examples or other people that you've seen who might have been involved in bringing issues that are of great public significance to light and helping to shift and generate change. It's very important, in my view, that um, people who've had the blessing of good education and uh, have got knowledge uh, should be joiners. They should join civil society organisations. They should join uh, academic uh, groups and they should discuss things with uh, family, colleagues, friends and become involved in society and in its response to its problems. So um, in the case of the HIV pandemic, as it began in Australia, um, we were very fortunate that there were two politicians, one in government and one in the opposition, uh, who understood the dynamics of, of a, an epidemic where we don't have a vaccine, we don't have a cure. And uh, that led to an articulation of the AIDS paradox, that paradoxically, the best way to approach the confinement of the spread of HIV was to reach out to, um, be protective of, engage with, listen to uh, those people who are in the front line, injecting drug users, sex workers, uh, and uh, other vulnerable groups. And that was something unusual. That was not the usual way epidemics had been addressed in the past. The usual way was quarantine, lock them up, throw away the key. But uh, with HIV, uh, a different strategy was taken. And in those countries like Australia and New Zealand that adopted the paradox and the protection of the vulnerable, uh, we did better. The countries that didn't take protective measures did badly and the United States of America was one such country. I find it so interesting, there are, there are two things I find really interesting about this. One is that the bipartisan collaboration between the opposition and the government showed that when we stop health rights being um, punitive or political, we can do so much better at addressing health issues in society. 
And the second thing is that because of the nature of HIV, that there is no cure, no, no treatment, we can um, you know, slow it down as best we can, that the, the responsibility lies with individuals, like social and socially and culturally, to spread the word, to be responsible citizens in addressing this health pandemic. And I, I love that, that idea that there is both the, the, there is a responsibility on our government to pursue health and, and, and prevent it from becoming political. But then there is that also responsibility on those of us in society to do our job, to spread the word. I remember seeing in an ABC article that um, there was the lapel pins showing that people wore condoms during the AIDS pandemic to, to promote discussions and to promote awareness about safe sex. And I love that we had very similar um, pins during the, the voice referendum, the voice treaty truth. And it was just a way of communicating without words and, and spreading awareness. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more um, about the role of individuals in, in movements like this. Well, individuals, especially if they have some political or, or public power, can make a big difference. Uh, and in the case of the HIV pandemic, we were just fortunate to have um, Dr. Neil Blewett, a social scientist, and an academic uh, who was highly intelligent, and he was the new Minister for Health in the Hawke government when it was elected in 1983. And on the other side of the aisle, um, there was Professor Peter Bohm, who was the coalition shadow spokesman on HIV. And uh, the story goes that Neil Blewett walked across King's Hall in the old Parliament House, walked into the opposition area, which was very unusual for the minister to do that, plonked himself down on the desk in Peter Bohm's uh, office and said, Peter, you're a professor of public health. You will know better than I do that in this circumstance, we've got to do something very unusual and we should be willing to do it and move beyond the politics of making um, progress for ourselves and for our votes uh, by uh, excluding others. And fortunately, Peter Bohm agreed. Those two men, they were really heroes of Australia. I'd love to say that that is something that has happened often or that will happen often. I don't think it will. We play politics in Australia very hard. Uh, but it just happened that when HIV came along, there were these two amazing men who thought this is something bigger than ourselves or political conflict uh, and we should therefore try to uh, apply a different principle and they did and it proved in Australia and New Zealand uh, very successful and it was largely because it was recommended to the countries of the world by the World Health Organization so it came from on high but it needed that catalyst of two uh, amazing people in the right place at the right time. How do you get that? You only get it if you're lucky and, and if people with intelligence and a sense of proportion and values get into public life and are not only concerned with their own sexual, their own private um, uh, advantage, but are aware and concerned with the whole advantage 
of their country, of its minorities, and of the world. Thank you. And we, we came across a quote when we were preparing for this podcast, and it was one of your quotes. It's from 1997, actually. It was at the Sydney Law School, I believe. Um, and it sort of speaks to that idea that you've just mentioned, and it's the quote was, if you think that something is unjust and you feel strongly about it and it affects the human dignity of another person, you should lift your voices. That's your civic obligation and privilege. And I suppose we have been reflecting. It's it's an interesting time, isn't it? We've obviously had the, the voice referendum in Australia. Um, last year or the year before, there was Roe v. Wade that was overturned, which was quite confronting for a lot of people. And there's ongoing climate crisis, which has public health impacts, particularly for vulnerable people. And I suppose as two people who've not yet got to the peak of our careers and aren't in that sort of political, <laughs> powerful position. To say the least. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we'll be very humble. But I guess we feel a bit helpless sometimes about what do we do? Do we wait until we get there? What can we do in the meantime? No, I, I don't think you wait. You've got to start. I started early. I became involved in student politics. And I was the king of student politics in my time. I became the president of the Sydney University SRC, president of the Sydney University Union, fellow of the Senate, uh, life member of the National Union of Students. And so all of these things, uh, I was really a joiner. And when I finished university, rather belatedly, after I did a lot of extra degrees, uh, I, uh, I, I was involved with the Council for Civil Liberties. And so I've always been a sort of joiner. Um, it might be that being gay and knowing that I was gay meant that I didn't have a life of discos and uh, all the other things that young people had at that time and still have for their fulfillment and sexual enjoyment and life and experience. But um, I filled those days with activities. And one thing it did, I became a very good chairman or presiding person in meetings uh, because um, the skill is that of being fair to the participants but drawing out of them a way forward in the particular problem and I learned that and that later was to turn out to be very helpful in my work as a judge because a judge after all is sitting there as a sort of chairperson of the uh, proceedings and has to be courteous and polite, firm, uh, in command but drawing the proceedings in a way that is a positive direction to the outcome. and. So um, even though it was a life of loneliness to some extent in those days when you couldn't mention sexuality, uh, I look back on it with mixed feelings because it, it did have the consequence, uh, A, that I could learn things that otherwise I mightn't have experienced, and B, that I appreciated my partner Jan when he ultimately came along. That's a beautiful story. Um, I find that so interesting how you can both regret and appreciate particular circumstances that contribute to your success. I think you like contrast, don't you? Uh, another question you asked, you like uh, <laughs> the complexity. Most people, especially in politics or in political opinion, love things to be served up very nice, simple, straightforward, and there's only one answer. 
Whereas in society, there are always complexities and there are always nuances of difference and disagreement. And that's just part of a vibrant free society. We're not a dictatorship and we don't want to become a dictatorship. We want to respect other people, even people who oppose the voice. There were people who were very anxious about having a provision in our national constitution that was founded on the race of a particular minority in a country which is a multicultural, multinational. And so these were not bad people. They were, they were people who just had a different perspective. But what we've got to do is turn from the failure of the voice referendum to considering how we can do some practical things without needing a change of the constitution, at least in the first short term, and doing things that will advance the economic, the health, uh, and the social, the political uh, progress of the First Nations people. That's, once again, so, so interesting. Thank you for that. Um, I was wondering if we could turn um, our attention to one of the issues raised in Article 64 of the Political Declaration. I think this ties in really nicely with what we were just saying about um, the role of respecting others, um, even when they disagree with some of our most fundamental values. Um, and I was, uh, it talks about the role of sort of social media, um, particularly in being used to disseminate misinformation and disinformation, hate speech and stigmatisation that causes irreparable harm to people. So um, I think I might have put the social media spin in there, <laughs> but it was uh, the, the document is talking about that there is a responsibility to address and prevent um, this sort of thing during a pandemic. And we had a, um, as uh, Gen Z, <laughs> we, uh, you know, we grew up with social media, we've seen it used harmfully, we've seen it used well. And we were wondering if you think social media is a useful platform for individuals to shape change in relation to these health issues. Well, whatever I think about it, social media is not going to go away. And therefore, the better question and nuancing the question is how can we try to encourage social media to be more responsible uh, and less unkind. Um, it may be that there's some aspect of the technology that involves uh, actions done in private, but which uh, then go and do damage and harm to a very large number of people. And how do we make people think before they act and before they tap out a message that will do a lot of harm to particular individuals. So um, I, I don't think it's really relevant for me to say what I think about social media. To be honest, I don't use social media. I, I find it's enough for me to answer all my emails, many of them from admiring law students. Uh, but um, uh, it's, it's going to remain and uh, maybe we've got to have a way to teach people in school about the hurt and harm and unkindness. Um, I think it's important to encourage kindness to one another. And maybe that in my case, nuancing the message, is the result of how unkind I found people, even people I knew well, even 
fellow students at the university um, and to teach them that think before you act, think uh, about your duties of kindness to one another and uh, don't just let um, nasty statements uh, become your byword. So I, I don't think I, I'm the right person to answer the question, but that's my take on it. No, I think that's way better than what I was asking. I think that that's just an excellent statement. Just be kind. And picking up on that idea of kindness actually leads to another question that we have for you, which is this idea that sometimes we are quite unkind as a society to individuals who might come forward to share their experiences, whether that be social media, uh, through social media or otherwise, even in sort of structures. So. Uh, one of the things that you know you hear is that if people make complaints about their circumstances in healthcare, it's often dismissed as they're emotional. It doesn't really tell us anything about the system necessarily. Um, and so I think there's this unkindness sometimes to people who come forward and share stories, trying to illumin illuminate broader social problems. But it's paradoxical because the entire kind of foundation of our common law here is that we listen to individual stories and we make decisions and we shape law and we improve our society through those individual stories. I wondered if you have any reflections on that sort of paradox, I suppose. Well, paradoxes abound in human uh, existence and the AIDS paradox, that it was paradoxically best to help and reach out to and be kind to people who are exposed to or have been infected with HIV uh, is a moral obligation of human beings just because they're human and because they can uh, perceive, if they stop and think about it, the uh, harm that um, hate speech or other uh, racist speech um, or homophobic speech can do to uh, other human beings. So um, I, I think uh, we've, we've got to... Uh, it's actually quite interesting what is the fundamental reason that we insist on human rights. You might say it's because of human dignity. There's a suggestion of that in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the Charter of the United Nations, human dignity. And some people of a religious persuasion say that is because a human being is made in the image of God. That, that is said to be a foundation but I think a, a firmer foundation uh, for um, our society today could be that it's founded on uh, empathy and respect uh, and kindness to other people. And uh, fortunately in my life, I grew up in a family of six, my father, my mother, my two, two brothers, that's three boys and one sister and uh, my parents were young and they were very very loving and supportive my father was very involved in his children and in their education he was a great storyteller and I think some people say my reasons for decision are very readable. Well, I blame my father for that because he was a very good storyteller. He would tell us stories and then say, now go to sleep, you brat. <laughs> <laughs> and my mother was very practical and had very good judgment and uh, 
was uh, not to be messed with. And uh, so I was very lucky. And I think this, not everybody can have that and not everybody has it. And uh, you can't sort of lay it down as a universal rule. But if you have that advantage, then uh, it does tend to play over um, into your life because you then think without articulating it, um, if I'm nasty to people, my dad and my mum won't approve of that and they will feel disappointed in me. And so I think that's, uh, at least in my case and in my particular circumstances and my particular family uh, situation, I think that's been a big influence. And my brothers and I um, get together once a fortnight and have dinner uh, with their long-suffering spouses. Uh, my uh, sister died um, of uh, lung cancer uh, and therefore we miss her. But when I say my prayers, I, I still think and count my sister as she's still with us. Um, if you have a, a, a happy family, you're lucky. Uh, in my case, I had a happy family, but it was on the basis of the price that I didn't mention the um, shocking or unpleasant or unwelcome news that I was gay. And that was just how it was in those days. And I thought that would go on forever and I would not outlast her. But in fact, uh, as a result of action, uh, by LGBT people and their straight allies, we've seen a lot of action and there's more to come. And especially in overseas countries where things are still very dangerous and very nasty to the LGBT minority. I feel very encouraged and inspired after talking with you today. You know, Ruthie and I have been talking for some time about, you know, we do feel hopeless in a world of so much so many problems that we just we cannot sit in this room and fix ourselves but i like the advice that you've left us with which is be kind and and be the change and they are two very simple things i can be kind and when presented with the opportunity i can make change same with being a joiner you can you can just sit at home and and uh, look after your own happiness and pleasure or you can make it your business to get involved with civil society there are thousands of civil society organisations and uh, not only is that good for the object of civil society to improve society but it's also it gets you noticed and that's if you're thinking of some role in the public or in the profession or in academic it's good to be noticed because it sends a signal that you're not just concentrating on your own little world in your mind, but you're concentrating on others who are perhaps less fortunate. And uh, so uh, I do emphasize, be kind, uh, be outreach and so on, but be a joiner yourself and get involved in, in bodies like the Council for Civil Liberties or Amnesty International or other uh, the International Commission of Jurists or the International Bar Association. If you're lawyers, there are uh, oodles of organisations that you can join and help. 
if even if in a little way to make the world a better place and to respond to people's sense of grievance and unhappiness and resentment because they don't see a way through the maze. Can I ask just maybe one final cheeky perhaps question about how as a sort of legal profession and society maybe we could structure our legal system or our litigation process better so that people feel more supported in that sense to bring cases or to bring claims. Um, and I know that's a big question to ask in a short <laughs> period of time, but any sort of overarching observations? The um, English legal system, which we've inherited in Australia, the adversary system, is a wonderful system if you can afford it. If you can get the barristers and before solicitors and um, the teamwork to go to court, look, look at the recent cases involving very well-known litigants uh, where the costs ran into millions of dollars. Well, who can afford that? It's just not feasible. So um, I think that's the big weakness of our legal system. It, it, it isn't really affordable. And we've got to therefore try, we've got to therefore try to find something that um, makes access to justice more doable. And that is a challenge which my generation um, copped out on. But it's the challenge for your generation to think deeply, what can we do to reduce the costs of justice um, and to find maybe alternative ways to resolve conflicts uh, by mediation, arbitration or tribunals or other means that will not bankrupt the ordinary citizen and be beyond their purse. That's really good advice and I'm looking forward to the challenge. <laughs> Me too, we'll take that up. Yes, <laughs> we'll carry the torch. And I'll be watching. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. This has just been an incredible discussion. We really appreciate you being here, your insights. Uh, thank you again. We feel so fortunate to have you in our little podcast room. <laughs> Something we, we did not think that we would be here, you know, just a year ago. So thank you so much for giving us the time. We really I'll come back it. to this little room. I'm, <laughs> I'm getting to find it very attractive. <laughs> <laughs> Is it the plate of muffins? <laughs> you back anytime uh, honestly it would be our honor so thank you so much and we wish you all the best for your for your future um, and um, your partner and your life so thank you so much <laughs>